But I would say that I had a very, very much fearful approach to cancer. I was constantly looking over my shoulder of what's gonna happen next? When's the other shoe gonna drop? That's really just no way to live. After my third diagnosis is when I really finally just said, you know what, Donna, you don't have any control over this. And I think any time that we pace ourselves through hard things, there is a real feeling of elation and accomplishment at the end of that. Let yourself feel what you feel. Welcome to the Unlocking Happiness Podcast. I'm Amy Dix, international best-selling author, speaker, and founder of Choose Happy. Collectively, our community builds a better world. I believe life is made up of moments. We have short moments, long moments, good moments and bad moments. We make sure that all of your life moments are filled with meaning and joy. Stick around to the end of the show. We'll reveal how you can be our next guest on the internet's happiest podcast. Now let's unlock happiness. Hello, all you crazy happy people out there. This is Amy Dix with Choose Happy with another episode of Unlocking Happiness. And today we are unlocking happiness with somebody who is local to where I am, which is the Jacksonville, Florida area, Donna Deegan. And Donna, you are a native of Jacksonville. You graduated from Florida State University. Go Knowles, go Knowles. <laughs> After FSU, you started a career in broadcasting, and that led to twenty a 28-year role as lead anchor at First Coast News. We all love First Coast News here in Jacksonville. And in 2012, Donna started two charitable foundations, the Donna Foundation and 26.2 with Donna, the National Marathon to Finish Breast Cancer. Uh, you are a three-time breast cancer survivor, an avid marathoner, a two-time author. <laughs> My cheeks already hurt from smiling with that bio. So welcome to the show. Thank you for unlocking happiness with so us today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love the title. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could be something grim, like uh, life stinks, you know, but who who wants to, wants listen to, to watch that? One? that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to watch that one. I don't want to listen to that one. No, that's not. So I love it. You know, I as I was looking at some things, you call yourself the chief eternal optimist. And so I would love to start there. I think it rolls really well into the theme of the show here. But, you know, my first question is, is have you always considered yourself an optimist? No, I don't think so. I mean, look, I spent my whole life in news. So so uh, <laughs> it, it took some effort to become uh, the chief eternal optimist. That really sort of was born out of my role as CEO, you know, of the foundation. And then I said, but, you know, who wants to be called a CEO? I like chief eternal optimist better. <laughs> but the truth is that really came about for me mostly after my third diagnosis with breast cancer, which which on its face would not sound like reason for optimism, but uh, but at the end of the day, led me down a path of, of, of discovery that I really hope helps other women, because I, I really do think that that if we are to find happiness, I, I think that really comes down to making a decision to do just that. It's really something that everybody has to make a decision on their own. Are you going to choose happiness? Are you going to, what did you say? The other one was grim, grim uh, life stinks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's certainly two kinds of people in the world. So, you know, but you said something really interesting, I think, which was, it was kind of born out of your third bout with cancer. So how has your mental health or how has your mental attitude changed throughout each kind of 
each diagnosis? I think when I was first diagnosed, I had my very type A, you know, Donna reaction, like I, like I did with everything, you know, okay, I'm going to put this on my calendar. It's going to be an appointment. I'm going to power through it. No big deal. Get on with my life. And, and then less than two years later, I was diagnosed again. That really got my attention. And I started to connect with other women and other, really other people who were going through breast cancer. I started a blog, uh, which became the basis of my first book. And it's when I first started to realize, boy, there are a whole lot of people that have it a whole lot worse off than Mm. you do. And so I, I was hearing from people that were having to make choices between food and medicine. And I thought, well, my goodness, at least I don't have to do that. But I would say that I had a very, very much fearful approach to cancer. I I was constantly looking over my shoulder of what's going to happen next. When's the other shoe going to drop, you know? And, and that's really just no way to live. We started the, the foundation after that second diagnosis to help underserved women with breast cancer. So part of that whole, you know, you don't get from point A to point Z overnight, right? Part of that whole transition was really feeling empathy for those people that were going through the same sort of situation I was only they didn't have insurance or they didn't have a good family structure or they didn't have, you know, the ability to, to have the same things and confidence that I did that, that I could go to my treatments, you know? And so I think it started there. And then after my third diagnosis is when I really finally just said, you know what, Donna, you don't have any control over this, mm-hmm. You're trying to control it. You can't control it. And as we all know, the worst thing for a type A personality is to tell them <laughs> I cannot control it. But but it really was, you know, I'll, I'll take you through that third diagnosis day. I mean, I, I was at Mayo Clinic. I was in for my five-year all clear, just all ready to, we were just about to have the inaugural marathon. And I was already, the argument in my head was already going with my doctor. Okay, I don't need to be having all these screenings anymore. I don't need to be having all these blood tests. You know, I've spent five years, I'm out of here, you know. And they found the cancer had gone to my left lung, which I thought was just an incredibly, horribly sick joke, given the fact that I'm a marathon runner. But I had to have a piece of my lung removed and and go through chemotherapy again. But that that very day, I remember leaving Mayo just sort of in a haze with my husband in tow. And we got to the car and neither one of us said anything for a few minutes. I didn't know what to say. I was just absolutely floored and devastated. But the first thing that came to my mind was you're going to have to help me learn how to live because I'm not going to spend whatever time I have left on this earth in fear. And, And it was that it was that very day that I made the decision that I was going to start to change the way my brain worked. And and that set me down a path of doing just that. I want to take the listeners back for a moment because you say it's the day before the inaugural marathon. And so not the day before it was, it was, it was coming up. This was in 2007. So the marathon at this point was probably four months away. Okay. So it was was just before the inaugural marathon and the marathon, just to kind of back up for folks, the marathon was established. And as the saying goes to finish breast cancer. So the marathon was established to raise funds. And here you were working on the first marathon and boom, four months before. The marathon had two purposes. It was to raise money for our underserved community that was facing breast cancer. And and then also to raise money for, for breast cancer research, bench top breast cancer research. And then also just to, you know, inspire people to, to, they could come out and and do something hard, you know, because cancer is a hard thing and, and a lot of people have had to go through it. So we were headlong into all that planning when this happened and it really was like, Oh my gosh, what do I do with this? And so Mm. I actually started, I kept my oncologist at Mayo Clinic, who was the most fabulous woman on the planet and one of the founders of the marathon along with me. And I also brought in an all alternative 
treatments and when I say treatments really more of a mind therapy uh, mm-hmm. oncologist she was also that. a trained oncologist but I said look I need to do something because I'm I, I can't live my life like this mm-hmm. and she said what is it you're so afraid of and I said well I'm afraid I'm gonna die and she said okay well everybody dies so you're gonna have to figure out how you're gonna live you know make a decision today you're gonna start dying you're gonna start living and she gave me a book called love is letting go of fear um, written by a guy named Jerry Jim Polsky who uh, we are very fortunate to have come speak at our 10th anniversary marathon. We're about to come up on our 15th anniversary. But Jerry had what I call as a 12-step program for fear addicts, basically things that you could do to start changing the way your brain works when you're fearful. And that led me to several other works and several other things. And with practice, I was having made that decision to change my brain, I was able to change the way I viewed my circumstances. And that's why my second book was called Through Rose-Colored Glasses, A Marathon from Fear to Love, because it's so easy to be constantly afraid and fearful when you face something like cancer. And, you know, the first step is accepting that that's how you feel and that's okay. And yeah. then the rest of it is basically just saying, okay, so what can I do with every single day that I have when I get up, I'm going to jump out of bed and be grateful that I'm here and see what I can do. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's not, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't want women to listen to this and go, oh, sure. You know, that's, <laughs> it's that easy. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy. What I'm saying is it is like anything else practice, practice, practice. It has transformed my life in so many ways that I'm really, really grateful for. I think it's interesting and you may know this already, but two primary emotions, right? Fear and love. You wrote the book on it. So (laughs) you tell us, Uh, but you, you know, we make decisions every day based on those two primary emotions, consciously, unconsciously, most of the time. And so I found it to be really interesting that you that one, you acknowledged that you had to kind of, as you say, change your brain and you put in the work to do that. So I'm curious, like as listeners are listening to this, what are what are some of the things that you might say is like a first step? If, I, if I'm listening and I go, yeah, I'm sitting here and I am in a place of fear. Where do I start? Like, how do I just get going on the right path? How do I just get going on the right path? Well, look, let's acknowledge that our society drives that, right? I think in a way, we're sort of all addicted to it in a way. And so the, the first part of it is wanting to change. I will say that is if you if you truly want to change and you make a decision that you want to change. What I started with was some books that I started to read. You know, like I said, once some that had steps, some that were just good things to put in my head. Then I started to do my version of meditation. I'm not really good at sitting still for hours on end. And, and I, I, I listen, I, I'm really just blown away by people who can. But because I am a distance runner, uh, for me, that whole cadence of long distance running became a time for, you know, meditating on certain things, mantras, things that I would put in my head that helped me to move away from that place. Because I think part of it is the first step is awareness, right? You recognize when those crazy thoughts are coming into your head and then you have to deal with them. But then you also have to become very comfortable in a state of really unknowing, not knowing exactly what's going to happen. And you have to go, you know what? I got to get myself comfortable in this space. You got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable at first. And then, and then it goes from there. So I would simply say, there's no one path, but find the things that feed you in a loving way, in a, in a way that allows you to 
truly get up every day. One of the things I do is I keep a gratitude journal. And so that helps me framed every day when I get up in, you know, what am I grateful for? Even if, even if I've had a bad day and I wake up and I go, I'm just grateful the sun came up today and I'm still breathing in this day. You know, I mean, regardless, you know, there's always something you can be grateful for. And you find the more things you list, the more feelings of gratitude that you get. And the more you do that, the more that frames your day and your thoughts. And so it really is, it's like, it's just like fearful thoughts that mm. when you start down that path, they become more and more fearful. Same is true for grateful and loving and joyful thoughts. So, yeah. so you just have to choose to go there. And it's unfortunately for most of us human beings, it's just easier to go the other way, right? It's because a default almost. Well, sure. Cause yeah. we all want control. We all want, yeah. to <laughs> and we want to control what happens, but we have to, we have to, we have to face the reality that, you know, life is a bunch of things that we don't know, but all we have is the day that we're living in. So we got to get up and do the best we can in that day. And, and, um, man, does that transform your life if you really let it do that? So that's what I would say to people is find stuff that, that you love that feeds your brain. And I wrote about that journey in that second book. That's, that was my journey to, to that place. And, and it just all coincided beautifully, you know, with the marathon and all the loving spirits and people that came from all over the country to run that marathon. And do you know, I ran that inaugural marathon just a, a few weeks post-surgery to have part of the lung removed. <laughs> wow. And during this, I just, I'm telling you this though, to, to tell you the power of the mind. Yes. The post-surgery and on a chemo that made my hands and feet peel. And I can tell you that I did not feel my feet touch the ground for all 26.2 miles mm. of that race. I mean, I was so doped up on joy that day that I just literally, I crossed the finish line and it probably took me a month to recover. <laughs> <laughs> but, but man, was that a, just a wonderful, happy experience. And my doctor ran on one side of me and my husband ran on the other side. And it was just, wow. it, was, it was fantastic. I mean, I got a little choked up thinking about that and thinking about like what that moment must have been like crossing the finish line that day. And how just, yeah, just full of joy, but there's got to be so many other emotions that you were feeling in, in that moment. Well, you know, I don't know if you're a runner, but, but, but there is, there is a special feeling of crossing the finish line of any marathon because it's a hard thing. And I think, and I think anytime that we pace ourselves through hard things, there is a real feeling of elation and accomplishment at the end of that. And so I think that, you know, that's really served me through this journey is that marathoning is very much a, a metaphor for, for life. And also for, for going through something like cancer, you have times when you literally just want to sit in the road and cry and you say, I don't want to go on with this anymore. I'm too tired. I can't do it. But you find if you can push yourself through that, with the goal in mind of crossing that finish line, that there is just immense joy with that. So I think whether I had been going through cancer or not, that would have been a joyful day for me. But the fact that I did it during that period in my life, I think also gave me a great deal of, um, of reinforcement for the things mm -hmm. that I was doing. Yeah. So inspiring. I think, you know, the first race that I ever ran, one of the things, I don't know who gave me this idea, <laughs> but I've done it ever since is to dedicate a mile to somebody each, you know, every mile gets dedicated to someone. And the very first, and I always say I'm only half crazy. I've never done a marathon. I've only done half marathons. But uh, <laughs> that first half I ran with my brother and this was probably in 2000 and 
man, I don't know, 10, maybe 2008. And I had written it all on just like this little sheet of paper and I crump, I had it in my hand. And by the end of that race, I like, I couldn't even read the ink was just like <laughs> ran through the whole thing. Uh, so then I started just writing it with a Sharpie on my, on my arm. And now of course we have phones, right? Or at least I'm with my phone. So now, you know, none of those, th- those problems don't exist anymore. But yeah, I mean, I think, I somebody gave me that advice. I don't remember who, but I've done it ever since. And one of the cool things I think about that is like it makes your your race very meaningful. Absolutely. And um, as we look at life in general, those moments of like finding meaning, you know, so that one mile might be really hard, but man, that's dedicated to my mom and I'm right. not going to, you know, screw this one up, you know, I'm going to keep going or whatever it is. But I, yeah. agree with, I agree so completely with that. And plus the fact that you're, it, it takes you out of your own self, you know, if you make it about somebody else, it takes you out of your own crazy head, right? And like you yes. said, it becomes okay. This is all for this person, and that. And you, I think there's so much joy, momentum in that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And I'm going to use your word again. You said something about being like how transformational or being able to transform your life. And so, as we listen to you right now, clearly you've gone from one place and we'll just talk about it from fear and love for a moment, but you've gone from one place of fear now to love. Your life has transformed in many other ways over time. So I'm curious, like, what was your childhood like? Oh gosh. Um, I had a great childhood. I mean, I, I grew up in Jacksonville, you know, my parents were always very encouraging and fantastic people, but you know, my dad was an opera singer, an opera singer and an attorney. Interesting combo, right? (laughs) I was basically dragged to every opera you could possibly imagine three times, you know, <laughs> uh, I, so I had sort of a different uh, childhood maybe than some people, but, but very grateful for it. A lot of, a lot of music in my life and, and certainly a lot of love. And, and, and I've had, I'm, I'm fifth generation to Jacksonville. So I've just got a lot of family members here, but I would say that I definitely did not grow up with a, with a, a, a propensity toward being that, that optimistic person. I'd say I grew up very type A, my dad was very type A, so I would say I was very type A, but I think you have to, you have to back yourself off from some of that and, and ask yourself why, you know, am I, do I feel the need to just control every single thing? Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, I think that's a hallmark of somebody who's type A, but I, I don't know, but my, my dad always told me, you know, just be who you are. Cause if, if, uh, if you're not, you got to remember stuff and you don't really want to do that. Right. And then, <laughs> and then if, um, you're going to find that some people don't like you and that's okay, but at least they'll know that what they see is what they get. So I think I've always tried to be an authentic person. Um, I just think I, I wasn't always that person that saw the upside of everything. And like I said, I think part of that is just my choice to get into television news. You know, it's just a, there's not a lot of happiness in that, uh, (laughs) in that space. Uh, you're constantly, I mean, you, you, you see the worst of people and you see the best people. I mean, but more often than not, you know, you're covering your things that aren't so pleasant. So, um, good to move on from that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here you are. Uh, No, I I loved every minute of it. And I loved telling people stories and and all of the connections that come with that. But I think that everything that happened to me through the cancer definitely helped me to get to a different place mentally and spiritually. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really important for all of us. 
Yeah. So you mentioned your dad a lot. You don't mention your mom. Did your mom have an influence on you growing up? Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah, of course. My, I call my mother the redheaded wonder. Um, <laughs> so, so think about that in all the ways, right? Um, uh, she's, she's about 4'10", but she's like the Tasmanian devil. So yeah, she's, no, she's wonderful. She's just, um, she worked when I was little and then mostly was, was at home later. Um, but my father was ill for much of my childhood. And so my mother really became the caregiver. So my dad, I actually gave my dad a kidney when I was 18 because he had, he had kidney disease for most of my growing up years. And then he died when I was 28. So, Mm. um, so there was a stunting there of, of, of some of that, but, um, but you know, lots of love, I don't have no negatives there. Just, um, Awesome. Yeah. I always say too, like, I wouldn't change my childhood for anything. My parents were amazing. Awesome. You know, I loved hearing you say that your dad uh, or your parents believed in you, believed you could do anything. And very similar to my childhood too. And I think that that played a really significant role in my adult life and understanding that you really can achieve anything. And it wasn't really until I got to college that I realized not everybody's parents tell them that. <laughs> you know? well, I, think so. it also, I think it also helps you to continue to push the boundaries because it, the, the same is true in the spiritual work. You know, you can't, it's, it's not like you can just say, okay, I'm there, you know, and you're just going to stay all good. You get, it takes constant maintenance. And I think when you realize that you can do whatever you put your mind to also, it's, it's that thing that you're going to go, okay, if it doesn't scare me a little bit, then I'm probably not doing it right. You know, yeah. and, then, and then you bring your own brand of whatever it is to that. When I say scare, I don't mean like in fear. I mean, like, and does it push you? Does it, does it challenge you? Which is probably another reason I love marathons for whatever reason. I seem to like hard things. I don't know why. <laughs> it's that type A personality again. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> coming through <I'm> on it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're obviously a really inspirational person. Anyone in Jacksonville knows that you're an inspirational person and feels that and I'm curious through all your time, either with the news or through the foundation, while you're very inspiring, what is one of the more most inspiring stories that you remember of someone else? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I can pick <laughs> one. I mean, I mean, there there are so many. I remember one of the first people that really inspired me and really was one of the reasons the foundation came to be was a woman named Susan Merrillist. And when I met Susan, I mean, I have never seen a more positive, more nourishing, amazing human. She was a, she was a volleyball coach, Um, but she is somebody that got diagnosed with breast cancer when she was, I mean, they told her she had six months to live and she lived for 12 years after that. And I think she lived on pure desire, love, she was that person that was really my first role model. And she would always tell me, I mean, always tell me, you got to let go of the fear, Donna. You got to stop let you got to stop letting it. If, it. if cancer wants to come along, it's going to come along. You got to stop being <laughs> fearful. And I would always go, sure, sure. Like anybody could stop being fearful. But but she she passed away right before the marathon started. And we were, I think we were in our second, maybe in our second year, maybe our third year. I'm trying to remember, but she told me when she died, she said, look, I'm sorry. I can't do all the things I said I was going to do for the marathon, but I'll, I'll be in charge of the weather. (laughs) And I said, cool, that'll be really helpful. So we had one year that looked like it was just going to be completely super socked in. I mean, Tim said, Don, I'm sorry, but this is gonna be a complete washout. Yeah. My husband's (laughs) a meteorologist. So that's, um, and so, uh, and and I said, well, I don't believe it because I have my angels and I'm not going to worry about it. (laughs) Long story short, you know, we started the day looking like it was just going to be dismal. And by the time we made it to the beach, which at that point we ran a stretch on the beach. 
Susan was a huge beach person. She always oh. said, we'll see the dolphins out there. That's going to be me. And so <laughs> we, we, t- we turn onto the beach. I spot this dolphin, you know, out in the water and I say, hi, Susan. And then right above the dolphin, I see this little tiny patch of blue in the sky. And by the time we left the beach, the whole sky was blue. Oh, <laughs> uh, so, so I would say that, that Susan, um, Susan was a huge inspiration. We actually had a fellowship named after her at Mayo. Um, and I, I just, she's one of those teachers that you have along the way, right. That, that you don't recognize at the time as a teacher, yeah. uh, but you just know you felt in your heart. So I'm still grateful to her to this day yeah. for those lessons. And, and I, every time I see a dolphin out in the water, I just say, <laughs> I see what I do. And for the, and for the great weather every year. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we've been really fortunate. We've been really fortunate. Yeah. I mean, the, the race used to be, it no, was no, changed no, in October. No, it's always been, it's always been in February. It's always been in February. We, we, we had, we have a 5k that, that we is affiliated with the players championship, which is a big golf tournament here that that used to be in uh in in um may and now that's moved to october because yeah, they, cause they changed uh, it yeah. darn players i know <laughs> what are they thinking <laughs> i really liked it when it was in may you know because you could play off the whole mother's day theme and yeah, i know it, it was but I, I i understood their reasons for doing it and it's yeah. just wonderful they continue to support us it's such a beautiful place to run too so and you know we didn't have an event in october so that's that's a good breast cancer you know awareness month for us so we're good we're, we're yeah we're happy either way. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. I ran that uh I ran that race at the players and it is a beautiful run. It's it's cool to be out on the course like that, you know, with yeah, I think I'll never be able to hit a golf ball straight. <laughs> we'll be able to do something on the course. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Okay, so Susan, your friend Susan, you talked about a lot with her about positivity. And I want to touch on a topic that comes up quite a bit in my conversations, not necessarily um, on the show, but is false positivity mm-hmm. and what that means and, and how that feels. And so um, just to set a little bit of context, you know, false positivity, meaning Donna, you've just been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, don't worry about it. Everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be fine. Just stay positive, right? That's as we define false positivity. That's what it would sound like. So I just want to hear kind of your thoughts on that topic? Well, it's really why I say to people, let yourself feel what you feel. It is, you know, there's an old saying, the only way around is through. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and you can't, you can't pretend something away. Now, I understand the whole theory of faking it till you make it. Sometimes you've got to put on that face to yourself to get through certain things once you get, you know, but, but at the end of the day, I don't think you ever really make it to the place you want to go without feeling those feelings and letting them move through you and work through them in order to get yourself to that other place. So, so I'm not one of those people that tells people, Oh, you know, buck up. It's all great. It's all going to be fine. It's perfect. I think that people have to feel what they feel. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem, you know, I, I have always very much, and you know, it doesn't matter how many times I say it, people always call me a fighter. I have always very much bucked against the idea of, the fight, fight, fight against breast cancer. Because to me, if you're in a state of fight or flight, you are in stress, you are in fear. What I tell people to do is don't fight it. Let yourself feel what you feel. You're afraid, you're upset, you're you're in grief. Let yourself feel all those feelings so that you can then cope with those feelings and move through them. Mm-hmm. To me, that's the way through. But it's hard, 
right? Because nobody wants to feel those feelings. Yeah. Um, but it, but it's like anything else. You have to go through those stages. You can't escape them. And the more that you try to escape them, the more you feel like you're just, you know, running on the hamster wheel. So as hard as it is, I always tell women when they're first diagnosed, let yourself be mad. Let yourself be, you know, in grief. Let yourself be all those things that you're feeling and let that stuff dissipate in you as you accept it. And yes. then, move on, then move on and you can find your, you can find your, your place. I think positivity means something different to different people, but I totally understand why some women go, don't tell me to be positive. I get it. Um, yeah. you got to find your own Zen, right? It's not something somebody else <laughs> can do. You can't pretend it. You can't pretend it. It, it takes work. Takes yeah. Work. You know, when I, when I speak a lot on stage, one of the things that I often say is like, if you're sad, it's okay to be sad. We just don't want you to hang in that moment for, you know, too long where then it becomes unhealthy. But what I thought was, as I look back on it, the best advice or things that people said to me when my mom was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer was, uh, my cousin said, people are going to say really stupid things to you. (laughs) Don't take it personally. And at the time it was kind of like, Okay, because it was she was like just diagnosed at the time. And then looking back on it, he really was right. I'm glad he said it to me because it allowed me to kind of recognize it when people would say something. But and my mom would say when she was really, really sick, she would say, oh, Amy, people just don't know. She would feel bad for the other person because she's like, people just don't know what to say because at this point she was dying. So I love to talk about this because... I want to help people understand what to say to people and you don't have to be dying, but just in difficult times. Like, so I want your perspective on this. Like, give us some things that maybe we shouldn't say or things that maybe were said to you, not that you took it personally or you're yeah, not going to do it. it. Tell us the no. things we should say. Here's what you should do. You should be authentically there for people. Be present for your friends and family members, which means you ask them what they need. You want to be there for them. Look, you have your mom was absolutely right. One of the things I said is what I hated more than anything else was that that sort of blank stare of that. Thank God it's not me. Look that I always call it right. People just they're fearful. It's like they mm. see their own mortality in what is happening to you. And so they don't know how to handle that. So mm. what I always tell people is, listen, going through chemo is like being PMS on speed, right? So one day, <laughs> one day, something you say to me, I might be perfectly fine with. The next day, oh, help, help God, help God help you. <laughs> you know, so, so literally, I would say the best thing, I'm not going to say there's anything people should or shouldn't say. If you are truly there to be present for your friend, family member, whatever, and you are literally trying to find out what is the best I can do for you. I think that's the question. What awesome. can I do for you? What can I do to make this better for you? But understand that people are afraid and that's why they make the comments they make and don't, don't hold it against them. Your mom's right. Your mom's right. Absolutely. Yes. Don't judge them for it. That is the best advice I think that you could give anyone. So I love that. Just show up authentically. So obviously breast cancer has been a very public challenge or a challenge that you have faced that has, that you have brought out very publicly. Like what are some things that maybe some challenges that people don't know about you or maybe your close friends know that you would want to share that you have overcome and has, you know, kind of changed who you are, transformed and been part of who you are. 
Well, I think as somebody who went through cancer three times on television, you have to let go very quickly of that whole um, ego side of your brain that says I have to look perfect all the time. Mm. I mean, I turned me, my my skin was the most horrible shade, you know, while I was going through chemo, I was sick to my stomach. I kept a trash can next to me on the set so I could puke if I had to, you know, I, I, I had to wear wigs the whole time. And, and so you really have to sort of say, you know what, I'm not going to look my best and I have to be okay with that. And I think, again, it was one of those things where I went, people were very accepting. You know, you get the occasional nasty comment, but that's just being on television, right? I mean, you know, people always say, you know, you got to have a tough skin. Look, if you're on television, you got to... But but at the end of the day, I think that really did help me. I think the more vulnerable that we can actually be with our fellow human beings, the better connections we're going to have, the, the better opportunity we have for, you know, belonging with each other. And I think that's what we're all missing so much right now. I feel like with the way that so much of society is, we're so, it just seems like we're constantly like this and, and, and people get the most attention, the uglier they can be. Right. Um, and I just think we're all just really longing for that sense of that we belong. You know, I really think that's true. So that helped me with that. I think people were very accepting and I, and I learned to, to be vulnerable in front of people, which is another thing type A people aren't terribly. <laughs> yeah. If you were to define happiness in one word, what word would you use? I would use acceptance. Ah, uh, great. So we have the race coming up as we're sitting right now. It is mid January, 2022. And the race is coming up here, February 5th of this year. Where can people go? How can people get involved? Even if, if maybe they're like, maybe next year, but I still want to get involved. Where do we go? The race weekend is the fourth, fifth, and sixth. So on the on the fourth, the expo opens. On the fifth, we have the the one mile fun run and the and the and the kids run and the family run. So literally, there's a distance for everybody. If you're if you're just somebody that wants to go out and walk a mile with your kid, we have that on Saturday, and it's going to be so much fun. We'll have all sorts of things there for the family. That's down at the fairgrounds. And then on the sixth, we have the marathon, the half marathon, and this year because it's our 15th anniversary, we have a 15k relay. So you can have a three team three team relay, which which means you have three people involved, but each runs about three miles. So it's really not bad either. So I I always say there's a distance for everyone, but if you don't want to run or you're not a runner, you don't feel like participating, come out and cheer people on. There is just Mm. nothing. We have the best crowds in the whole country that come to our races because they, they feel so deeply the mission of what we're doing. And so you'll see so many people holding signs. Thank you for running for my mom or my sister or whatever it is. If you want to happy dose of, uh, of inspiration. That is the place to be on marathon Sunday out there at the beaches. And we're starting from the seawalk pavilion. So you can go to breastcancermarathon.com and you can see all that information right there, register, or just see where you show up, download our spectator guide, all that good stuff. Love it. Thank you so much for that. I just have one last question for you. Oh God. And, okay. <laughs> and it's the same question I ask all my guests and it is a two part question. Okay. And the first part of that question is if you had only seven more days left to live, what would you do? Exactly what I'm doing right now. I, I really, truly would. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd want to get my kids around me somehow because they're, they're, they're not both here right now and they're sort of spread out. So I'd, I obviously want to spend time with them. But but the truth is, because I do feel like I live each day as it comes and I try to do that with as much joy as possible, I would just be with the ones I love and live with as much joy as I can and, and do what I could up to the final last day. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. So the second part of that question is if you only had seven more days left to live, but you were in a debilitated state. So all we had left was your words. What last bit of advice would you want to give the world? Choose love. I guess that would be it. Choose love. It's a choice. See each other, accept each other, try not to judge (laughs) Uh, and, uh, and realize what a miracle this life is and live it, live it. Awesome. Donna, thank you so much for unlocking happiness today. It was such a pleasure having Gosh, a conversation. Thank you with so you. much. I actually needed this today. So thank <laughs> you for the little love vitamin. So I'm 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 feeling much happier now that I'm gone. So <laughs> we'll both go conquer the rest of the day. Let's do it. <laughs> thank so you. Much. Yes, thank you. Thanks for inspiring all of us. Amy Dix here. Thank you so much for listening to Unlocking Happiness. I hope you loved the show. And if you did, post a link to your social media, tag a friend, and hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. Help spread more happiness in the world by leaving us a review. If you would like to learn more about what we do, visit choose-happy.me. And if you want to be a future guest, click on the podcast tab to learn more. If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag Unlocking Happiness with Amy Dix. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and hit subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean the world to me and my team. Want to know more? Go to our website, choose-happy.me or join our Facebook group called The Happiest Group on Facebook. Thanks for listening. This is Amy Dix, and we will see you next time.